address uh, those borrowers at all in upcoming actions. So the administration is still saying that they are trying to find a workaround to include those borrowers, but certainly that decision to cut them out on September 29th uh, suspiciously happened hours before the six states filed their lawsuit. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the claims in the case is that um, the department is essentially enticing borrowers to consolidate their loans into the direct loan program, which will lose revenue for these state entities. Now, by cutting off the ability of these borrowers to consolidate into the direct loan program, the Justice Department raised in several filings that, oh, there's no, there's no argument here. There's no harm anymore. Um, unfortunately, that sacrificed hundreds of thousands of borrowers for, for millions of others. That's essentially what happened here. Uh, the Department of Education says they're still trying to figure out a way around this to help people. but. A lot of fell borrowers I've spoken to were just completely crestfallen, especially since prior to that decision, the department explicitly told people, you can wait on consolidating your loans. You don't have to do it right this minute. And then weeks later, they cut them all out. And Kevin, do we know the, the type of uh, borrowers that make up the federal family education loan borrowers, the, the demographics uh, of people that are impacted by getting cut out of this program? Well, there are, there are all kinds of people. Uh, as Danielle said, this was prior to 2010, uh, most federal loans were actually administered by private banks. The federal government uh, essentially paid and subsidized private banks to make uh, loans. It was a very expensive way to do it, which is why they stopped doing it in 2010 and, and, and just made the loans directly. But uh, there are millions of out there who borrowed uh, money before then. So the only thing that we really know about these loans is that they're old. Um, they are they are by definition 12 years old or more, um, which means you know you have a lot of people you know who may have just been struggling to uh, pay down their debt for decades or more. Um, uh, some of the most heartbreaking stories you hear in the federal in the student loan space are people who borrowed money in the 1980s, in the 1990s. Um, you know, maybe uh, from a long defunct for-profit college and they didn't make their payments. Now, you know, fees have added on and the balance has grown. And, um, you know, these are some of the folks who, unfortunately, uh, because the administration is playing defense and trying to have the best possible legal case to defend the entire uh, loan forgiveness plan, um, chose to exclude uh, some of those older fell borrowers. And the administration is still taking applications despite the pause, right, Danielle? And um, and can you just give a little run-through on exactly how people apply? What kind of information do they need to provide the administration to apply? Sure. So, yes, the administration is definitely still taking applications. There are even uh, senators and members of Congress, otherwise, who are going around to their district to encourage people to apply. Uh, the administration say that they're going to collect applications and start to review them, even though they can't start discharging the loans. The While there are about 8 million people who are eligible for automatic relief uh, because they recently submitted income information through the FAFSA, the Federal Financial Aid Form, or because they are repaying their loans through income-based repayment, 
those people don't have to apply and they're being notified and probably have already been notified with an email from the department saying that they're eligible for this automatic relief. They can opt out at any time. Everybody else can go to studentaid.gov to apply. And it's a really short form, I think maybe four or five questions asking just basic information like name, social security, number, birthday, um, and I think uh, whether or not you had a Pell Grant. The department can match up that data with their own files about whether or not you had a Pell Grant. Um, so I know there was some concern about people who had attended school before 1994 and them not being able to find their Pell records in the National Student Loan Database. But the department has said that they do have that information on hand. So once you apply, they'll be able to kind of verify whether any of that is accurate. It's really, it's a self-attestation form. So you are telling the federal government that all the information that you're supplying is correct under the penalty of um, being penalized if you are lying. So that is a part of it. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of concern about whether or not there could be fraud in this program because of this short kind of self-attestation form. There will be some verification, random sampling of verification to make sure that borrowers are providing the right information and requiring them to submit a few more documents to verify. I think the department said it could be anywhere between a million to five million people could be flagged for verification and under this process, depending on how many people apply. So just pay attention to all those things, but the application is still open. Uh, they are working on a paper form as well, but right now online through your phone, you can apply. All right. Well, Kevin and Danielle, I'm going to give you five seconds each for some final thoughts uh, about this. Uh, Kevin, you go first. Uh, just to repeat, if you're listening and you have a student loan, uh, this is the time to pay attention. This is the time to be on the phone with your servicer. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in front of us and there's pretty big financial stakes. So pay attention and uh, make sure you start making your payments in January once they come due. And Danielle, anything else that you're keeping an eye on? I would just kind of uplift what Kevin said, just really pay attention to what's happening. I'm paying a lot of attention to these lawsuits, but I would also say separately, there are a number of other initiatives that the Department of Education had announced in the last year that are starting to take shape right now, like the income driven repayment adjustment, right? Now this could potentially help a lot of people who have been making payments for 20, 25 years, get closer to forgiveness, if not have their loans fully uh, wiped away. Pay attention to that. The Also, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Waiver is ending this month. If you haven't already applied, that is also something to look into. So while certainly the one-time relief would be offer the broadest level of uh, debt relief, there are other programs out there. That's great. Thank you to both of you. To Kevin Carey, Vice President for Education Policy and Knowledge Management at New America, and to Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, who is a national higher education reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you so much to those listening uh, for our deep dive on President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. How's everyone doing? We were listening to the last couple minutes of a 31 minute interview on YouTube by PBS NewsHour oh, around October 27th it was posted on YouTube updating the status of this student that relief program, the Biden-Harris program, 
for $10,000 or with for Pell recipients up to $20,000 forgiveness, which we all know has been on pause for weeks now because of legal challenges from different states that are claiming they they will be harmed by this. They'll lose tax dollars or they'll be harmed in different ways. And so far, to bottom line it, my understanding in the last couple of weeks, uh, President Biden was on YouTube. You can look it up or it may be already posted on this show, on this podcast, President Biden was saying that the court challenges were almost completely all knocked down and that the court was only considering one other challenge at the time that the president made this this speech on YouTube. So the president was saying that at that point he was feeling confident that the challenges would not prevail, that his forgiveness plan would be able to move forward, and that they would win in court, in essence, but we're going to have to keep in touch with all of the different um, borrowers that hold our student loans contact them they are contacting us but we'll have to keep in touch with them and um, keep current because it's a a fast moving scenario whereby things are going on in the courts things are going on in the Department of Education things are going on in the White House so we have to keep on top of all these different places that are making changes, moving um, at different levels, setting different deadlines and changing things around so that it's not easy to keep up. As you just heard in this this current um, segment here, at one point we were told don't worry about consolidating your student loans if they were no longer with the Department of Education and they were with a private entity. Um, Don't worry about consolidating. And the next thing we know, they were headed into court and at the 11th hour, they set this hard deadline of September 29th 2022 for which after that date if we had not consolidated student loans that were not under the Department of Education that were under banks or other private entities after September 29th we could no longer apply if we had not already consolidated our federal student loans. So you you see, it's a a fast-moving 
uh, situation that we have to stay on top of. But even if we did not meet certain deadlines or qualifications, we have to still be willing to fight until hell freezes over and then fight on the ice. We can't stop fighting. And my personal belief is that win, lose, or draw, whether we get debt forgiveness under this plan, under the $10,000 or the $20,000 plan, some of us already know that the loans that we are paying or have paid off over our lifetime, that we were paying for not only our education, but other loans that in the past that were either written off as deadbeat borrowers, that was included in our loans when we took them out. So we're paying for our loans and other borrowers that did not pay. So we have to be willing to fight to get whatever crumbs you might call it from the table that the that the uh, government might be willing to to um, throw our way. So yeah, we have to really stay on top and be ready to you know press our way, present our our cause with whoever holds our loan education department or banks or whoever it is Naviant um, there's any number of different people that have some of our loans that go back you know some people have loans that go back to the 1990s or 1980s so you know and there are the uh, website I read this morning and all yesterday I was reading on the Department of Education's website studentaid.gov they are continuing to find alternative paths for those who may not get the $10,000 or $20,000 debt relief the Department of Education is continuing to find a workaround for people that did not qualify under that plan. So that means for sure we have to keep searching, keep reading the the websites. If not online, we have to keep in touch with our whoever holds our student loans outside of the Department of Education until we find a pathway for our loans to either be partially or fully uh, forgiven. Okay, so you can look forward to more updates on this web on this uh, podcast. Okay, take care, stay safe, and 
tomorrow will be November 11th. So to all of the veterans, happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service.
the state of student loan forgiveness. Hosting today's panel is NewsHour's White House correspondent, Laura Barone Lopez. And joining Laura <clears throat> is Danielle Douglas Gabriel, a reporter with the Washington Post covering the economics of higher education, as well as Kevin Carey, the Vice President of Education Policy at the Think Tank New America. And with that, I'll pass it over to Laura to get us started. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, well, let's, uh, before we dive right in, I want to give everyone a quick refresher on what has been happening with President Biden's student debt relief program. So to start, President Biden announced that he was going to cancel some student debt for certain borrowers in August, and that included $10,000 for borrowers making less than $125,000 and for households making less than uh, roughly 250,000 and, and it up to an additional 20,000, uh, in forgiveness for Pell grant recipients. Now applications opened this month and so far already about 22 million have applied according to the White House, according to President Biden. Now, as many of you probably know, there are a lot of lawsuits out there to try to stop the student debt relief program. Right now, there is a temporary pause that was recently issued due to one of those lawsuits. And so I'm going to dive in now with our guest to get into all the details about where we are on that. Danielle, I want to start with you. Um, what is the latest in these ongoing legal challenges? Can you bring us up to speed? Sure. So certainly, as you mentioned earlier, there is a stay that was imposed by an appeals court in one case that involves six states, uh, Republican-led states, that are suing the department to upend the program, essentially charging that the Biden administration overstepped their authority by uh, issuing this program without congressional support, and that several of these states are stands to potentially lose t revenue that their state entities that happen to own some form of commercial or federal loans um, would lose out on as a result of the loans being canceled. Uh, so that's kind of where that stands right now. The appeals court is hearing arguments uh, or has not set quite a date for hearing arguments yet, but they are hearing responses from both sides and are trying to do an expedited uh, schedule so that they could get this situation uh, kind of wrapped up soon. I think at this stage, the next step is deciding whether there will be a preliminary injunction, which be would be an extended stay of sorts, halting the program while the legal proceedings go on and while the appeals court makes a decision on the case. Uh, so that could be uh, a, a further kind of disruption in where the program stands. And a quick follow-up there, Danielle, which is that uh, you mentioned the the argument from the states is around one of their arguments is that the administration went around congress the administration argues that under the heroes act um which was passed the one that they're looking at in 2003 that they that the education secretary has this this authority correct yes the heroes act you know is the statute that the administration is using to uphold this program and essentially the act says that under national emergencies, the Secretary of Education has extraordinary powers to deal with student loans. It was initially created in order to help members of the military after 9-11, um, but the Department of Education and the Justice Department wrote a 25-page memo just explaining how this particular statute would apply. And that statute kind of gives a, a lot of leeway here, and you know, the Justice Department, in arguments in the same case that we were previously talking about, has said, look, 
what else besides the pandemic would can constitute a national emergency? This was a global emergency and crisis that had economic fallout for millions of Americans. So we are appropriately using this statute to help that population.
Right, right. And now repayments are going to start, uh, restart after January. So, Kevin, I want to ask you, can borrowers expect to get any forgiveness before then? And if not, are they at risk of default or delinquency? Um, well, I think that the, the plan is certainly to try to implement uh, this forgiveness prior to that. That's why they launched the plan in August uh, and then delayed the restart of the uh, loan system until January. Um, there are millions of uh, borrowers out there who have less than $10,000, or in some cases, if they're eligible, less than $20,000 um, in outstanding loans. And so if those loans are forgiven, there would be no payments, and it would be uh, awfully complicated to have people making payments on loans that they um, uh, are in the midst of being forgiven. Um, but I, I would pay close attention if I were a borrower, because I don't think they're going to pause the pause again. Um, the, there have been no payments due since March 2020. It's coming up on three years um, since any payments have been due. The, uh, uh, the, the, the restart of the loan system has been extended, I think, at least five, maybe six times now. Um, and the administration seemed pretty firm that, that this last delay was going to be the last delay. Um, and so uh, if, you know, if you're not sure and uh, and you think you may have loans too, make sure that you're in contact with your servicer. Uh, uh, make sure they're in contact with you and that you can start to make those payments so you don't fall behind. Uh, is there generally any uh, risk of default for these borrowers though, Kevin? I mean, is there are there any that have started to raise concerns about their ability to actually resume these, these payments? Well, I mean, uh, default is always an issue. You know, I mean, the, uh, prior to March 2020, when the uh, system was put on hold, uh, a million people defaulted on their student loans every year. Given um, the uh, Biden's loan forgiveness plan is implemented successfully, I think it will substantially reduce the number of people who are at risk of default, but it will not eliminate them. There are still lots of people with loans that are more than $10,000 out there uh, who you know, may have been struggling prior to the pandemic to, to make their payments and may be still in a position where it's difficult for them to do that now. Um, th this whole process is also going to restart the clock on, on everyone's loans. And so it, it actually takes about nine months of not making uh, your payments to default. So if you don't make your payments in February, it's not like you go into default in March. Uh, but you will by the end of the year if, if your payments become due and you don't start making from any student loan borrowers on whether or not they're preparing to restart their payments? I have. I've heard from some borrowers who certainly have been preparing and their preparation has actually been saving up money um, to make payments whenever payments resume. Some of them had tried to take advantage of not having um, uh, interest accruing and were making payments during the, the pandemic pause on and off. And others honestly are saying that just the psychology of having to go back into repayment is a little challenging for them. It's been, as Kevin mentioned, almost three years for many people of having to, to not have that added bill in their budget. And so that's an adjustment. And there are others who were uh, at risk of default prior to the pause. Many people who I've spoken with who were delinquent who are concerned about whether or not they'll be able to pay uh, once the, the pause is lifted. And part of this is also, um, as I've listened to arguments, part of the administration, the Biden White House's uh, argument.
argument to judges in these lawsuits, which is they filed a 13-page economic analysis essentially arguing that um, that borrowers would be less likely to keep up with repayments on their student loan debt uh, as reason for this relief program to move forward. Kevin, I want to ask you, you know, this, this plan forgives loan debt for millions, but from a policy standpoint, what does it mean for current and future borrowers? Well, for... Uh, for future borrowers, I think it's going to raise some interesting questions uh, because, you know, while we, we paused the student loan repayment system, we did not pause the student loan granting system. Um, that system has been running at full steam throughout the pandemic. There have been hundreds of millions of dollars in new, new loans uh, made and, and are being made all the time. Uh, and if you uh, borrowed money after uh, the announcement of the uh, uh, student loan uh, forgiveness plan, then you're not eligible. Uh, it is it has been defined as a as a one time uh, uh, plan, uh, and so uh, you know, it, it's going to if the courts allow it to go ahead, it's going to provide I think needed relief to a lot of people. Uh, but it's also the case that you know, given the current pace of of borrowing, if, right, you know right now we have about 1.6 trillion dollars in outstanding federal student loans, a little more private loans. Um, let's say the, the forgiveness plan is, goes as well as could possibly go, and, and that amount is reduced by $500 billion. It's only going to take about another five, five and a half years to get back up to $1.6 trillion. Um, so whoever is elected president in 2024, um, if nothing else changes, is also going to have $1.6 trillion in outstanding student loans. That person is also going to in an environment where uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people are likely to fall from their loans every year, um, and so you know this is a, a a solution for things that have gone wrong in the past. It is not a prevention of things going wrong in the future. And you've written, Kevin, about how this raises the larger question, right, of what happens. Um, for future generations uh, of student loan borrowers and the underlying. Uh, issue, which is, are there other options for uh, to ensure that, that students don't enter significant levels of debt? Um, there have been some proposals from progressives about free college. There's been some about free community college from President Biden himself. I mean, what do you see as future options and the realistic, um, I guess, realistic expectations for students to even expect that things like that could ultimately pass Congress? Or be implemented. Yeah, I mean, President Biden did propose uh, a year ago, as part of his original Build Back Better agenda, a, a free community college plan that would have been very expensive, would have made tuition uh, zero dollars at, at most community colleges nationwide. Um, it fell out of the Come back into them, and it was ultimately not implemented. Uh, other, others, uh, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, perhaps most famously, is uh, proposed uh, free tuition at all public. Uh, all public colleges and universities nationwide, although I, I, you know, it's important to note that it's free tuition at public colleges and universities. In terms of major proposals by you know, well-known figures, that's as far as things have gone. Um, and, and actually, most of the money in the student loan portfolio was not borrowed to pay for tuition or to pay for undergraduate tuition at public colleges and universities. It was borrowed to pay for either private college tuition or graduate school or living expenses.
courses um, for undergraduates, none of which are covered by the, the, the free college plans. Um, so, I, you know, I think if this if this loan forgiveness program goes through, um, one, it's likely to be essentially a one-time uh, uh, windfall, if you want to call it that, for people who were graduate students in the past, because graduate student debt is covered by this loan forgiveness plan, but it's not really covered by anyone's proposal to make college more affordable in the future. Um, and second, you know, it's we're talking about an Affordable Care Act level of federal policymaking to really restructure the system in a way that would seriously prevent the accumulation of future debt, um, which is to say it, can, it could be done, but it would require kind of an alignment of stars and a real prioritization of Congress to really, you know, uh, take a bite at this big thorny problem and, and put some serious reforms in place. Danielle, you cover everything under the higher education umbrella. So are there other proposals that you've reported on uh, when it comes to addressing uh, future generations of student borrowers? I mean, one kind of perennial popular uh, proposal in Congress has been skin in the game, right? This is the idea that you uh, have colleges pay down some of the defaulted loans of their students after they graduate as a way, as an accountability measure to ensure that colleges are graduating students to be able to um, go into the workforce, find jobs that will help them pay off their loans. It's never really gained traction, even though it's had bipartisan support, but I have heard uh members of Congress on both sides of the aisle kind of resurface that idea in in the wake of a lot of these discussions about student debt forgiveness. I think we're also seeing Republicans kind of readying themselves for a potential uh, takeover of the House. And uh, Virginia Fox, who's the ranking member on the House Education Committee, recently came up with a proposal that would impose a lot of restrictions on the federal student aid program, kind of capping grad plus loans. As Kevin had mentioned, a lot of the debt that is outstanding is for graduate programs as well as private education and such. But grad programs in particular, about, I think, 40% of the loans that the Department of Education makes are for graduate programs at this stage. So it is taking up quite a bit of the outstanding debt. And a lot of conservatives would like to see more, um, less, less ability from uh, for, for borrowers to be able to borrow to the full cost of attendance as they can now. So I think pay attention to those proposals, as well as perhaps reducing some of uh, the power that the Department of Education and the Secretary of Education has in the federal lending program. Not sure if that would gain traction, but perhaps some of the ideas around capping some of the programs, Grad Plus, Parent Plus, um, kind of restructuring the way federal lending works might have some traction. Probably not with most Democrats at this stage. You know, Democrats have largely been focused on access and using the federal purse to afford access to low-resourced uh, communities. I don't see that changing anytime soon, but there are serious conversations, I think, happening on Capitol Hill about more um, responsible ways to run the federal lending system in a way that it's, it, it serves its initial
purpose, which is providing finance, uh, providing money, education finance to folks who otherwise would not be able to access the, the credit markets in a meaningful way. Right, and you're talking about proposals that could potentially um, get some time on the floor if Republicans gain control of Congress. Um, so to our viewers, please, if you have questions, tweet us at NewsHour with the hashtag AskNewsHour. And I want to take a few of our reader questions right now. Um, the first one, Danielle, I want to ask you is, if the current appeals court injunction is lifted, can President Biden grant forgiveness for the first wave of applications before it gets appealed again? This is from Jason Mueller. I mean, theoretically, yes, except for there are other cases happening at the same time where they're all asking for the same preliminary injunction. If any of those cases are successful in getting an injunction imposed, then you have another disruption in this program. So that's why it's kind of important to pay attention not only to that uh, six-state case, but also to a case uh, that was brought by the Job Creators Network, this conservative small business group out in Texas uh, that involves two borrowers. There's a hearing in that case today. There's also a case brought by the Cato Institute, a libertarian group, nonprofit, that's saying that this a debt relief plan will make it harder for them to recruit people uh, through public service loan forgiveness. Uh, all of these cases have the potential of um, grant, getting a preliminary injunction granted. However, you have seen the courts, and even conservative judges, so you have seen the courts dismiss a lot of these cases for lack of standing, meaning that these people can't prove that they're really going to be harmed by the implementation of this program. So it could certainly go either way. But a, six, a win for the Biden administration in that six-state court, uh, six-state case, would not be the end of it, unless all of the other cases are dismissed. Right, and we saw when the case was before the Missouri judge that they found that they didn't have standing to bring a lawsuit against the president himself. But related to this also, I mean, what, what would happen, Kevin, if someone, say, gets that relief in between pauses... Um, and then, oh, I'm so sorry, my dog is barking in the background there. But um, for if they were to get that relief in between pauses, they're granted forgiveness, and then litigation litigation picks up again, and there's another pause. Does that impact their relief at all? I mean, it could. You know, there are, as I noted, a lot of lawsuits have been filed. I think most of them are basically performance um, uh, uh, people just wanting to publicly demonstrate that they're um, uh, against this. I mean, there's some irony that the so-called small government libertarian Cato Institute is essentially arguing that it currently uh, is subsidized by the public service loan forgiveness program uh, and that it would lose that government subsidy. Um, so, um, uh, you know, that doesn't really seem like a good faith argument to me. Um, another kind of open and essentially unknown question is whether as these cases wind their way through the system, if there's enough space for the federal government to just officially tell people your loan doesn't exist anymore, um, would the, if the courts decided to rule against them, would they make them reinstate those balances? Um, that, that, that is not an open and shut question at all. You know, there have been many complex cases in, in the past where courts have said, well, you know, you, you can't do this again in the future, but we're not going to make you turn back the clock and kind of unwind um, the, you know, what you did in the past, um, that's certainly something that could happen. Um, I think in general, the standing arguments are pretty weak, but if you can get past them, the arguments on the substance are probably 
uh, quite a bit stronger, particularly if they're hurt by the current uh, six-justice conservative majority in the Supreme Court, which is where uh, any of these cases are likely to lead, um, you know, a, a court that has looked pretty skeptically and very recently pretty skeptically on uh, the ability of the uh, federal government to expansively interpret its own powers, um, which whatever your opinion about this loan forgiveness program, um, it's definitely pretty expansive.
And I think, you know, a, a few folks I've spoken to recently say that they're also concerned about if enough of loans are not forgiven by January and the Republicans take the House, Speaker McCarthy could take, could implement a move very similar to a former Speaker Boehner and try to sue in order to stop the implementation or discharge of loans, much like Boehner did with the ACA. Certainly, Congress may have a better chance of claiming standing under that kind of major questions uh, ideology of Congress has to have a say in any kind of major economic um, uh, rulemaking of sorts, right? So this is this is something I think people should also pay attention to as a possibility of another disruption that could happen in the road to forgiveness. Remember, this program ends in December 2023. So even though there's a lot of, of interest and it's very popular right now, as we're seeing in the number of people applying, it is entirely possible that some of the people who may need the help the most may not apply right away and could get caught up in that kind of political morass. So it sounds like one of the biggest takeaways right now across um, both you, Kevin, and Danielle is that borrowers need to be paying attention, whether there's a pause in the ability for the administration to discharge this relief, um, if there's an opening, because they may be able to get some relief very briefly. But as you said, Kevin, it's not an open and shut case as to whether or not they would have to take back on that debt. I just want to be sure I got that right. Yeah, it is, it is just not clear um, what would happen. If, if somebody successfully claims standing, if somebody makes a colorable argument um, around the uh, unconstitutionality of the Department of Education's interpretation of the EUROS Act, whether or not the courts would require uh, uh, forgiven loans to be unforgiven, uh, we just don't know. Okay, and then another uh, question from a listener has to do with the cost of this. So the Congressional Budget Office estimates that this will cost some $400 billion, but how would this potentially cost taxpayers? Kevin, you want to take a stab at that? Well, I mean, the, the U.S. Department of Education, the United States Treasury, is the, the, they made all these loans. Uh, so the taxpayers ultimately are the, are the bank, and if the taxpayers are paid back, then it costs the taxpayers money. Um, I don't think there's really any dispute about that. Um, so it just kind of goes to the, the, the bottom line of the U.S. Treasury in the end and, and how we think about, about deficits and, and national debt. And um, uh, I know that we covered this at the top, but uh, what types of loans are forgivable, Danielle? Let's go through that again for our listeners. Sure. So undergraduate loans, graduate loans, parent plus loans that are all held by the Department of Education. Those are all eligible for this program. Up until September 29th, um, people who had what are known as commercial phone loans, this, these are loans from a now defunct uh, program whereby uh, private lenders made the loans, federal government guaranteed them. Those folks used to be able to consolidate their loans and uh, into a direct loan program to be eligible. Anybody who has applied for consolidation before that September 29th cutoff date uh, can still be eligible for this debt relief program. Unfortunately, a little over 700,000 people who had not applied and who have these commercial fell loans are no longer eligible for uh, public service, for this uh, one-time relief. Sorry, there are so many relief programs, I was about to say public service, loan forget. <laughs> but no, for this particular plan, yes. Right. The fell, um, those family loans, correct? I mean, the, the administration ended up originally including them in this relief program, then taking them out of the guidance. And can you explain why they decided to do that? 
uh, and if they're going to address uh, those borrowers at all in upcoming actions. So the administration is still saying that they are trying to find a workaround to include those borrowers, but certainly that decision to cut them out on September 29th uh, suspiciously happened hours before the six states filed their lawsuit. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the claims in the case is that um, the department is essentially enticing borrowers to consolidate their loans into the direct loan program, which will lose revenue for these state entities. Now, by cutting off the ability of these borrowers to consolidate into the direct loan program, the Justice Department raised in several filings that, oh, there's no, there's no argument here. There's no harm anymore. Um, unfortunately, that sacrificed hundreds of thousands of borrowers for, for millions of others. That's essentially what happened here. Uh, the Department of Education says they're still trying to figure out a way around this to help people, but a lot of fellow borrowers I've spoken to were just completely crestfallen, especially since prior to that decision, the department explicitly told people, you can wait on consolidating your loans. You don't have to do it right this minute. And then weeks later, they cut them all out. And Kevin, do we know the, the type of uh, borrowers that make up the federal family education loan borrowers, the, the demographics uh, of the people that are impacted by getting cut out of this program? Well, there are, there are all kinds of people. Um, as Danielle said, this was prior to 2010, uh, most federal loans were actually administered by private banks. The federal government um, essentially paid and subsidized private banks to make uh, loans. It was a very expensive way to do it, which is why they stopped doing it in 2010 and, and just made the loans directly. But uh, there are millions of people out there who borrowed uh, money before then. So the only thing that we really know about these loans is that they're old. Um, they are they are by definition 12 years old or more, um, which means you know you have a lot of people you know who may have just been struggling to uh, pay down their debt for decades or more. Um, uh, some of the most heartbreaking stories you hear in the federal in the student loan space are people who borrowed money in the 1980s in the 1990s um you know maybe uh, from a long defunct for-profit college and they make their payments and now you know fees have added on and the balance has grown and um you know these are some of the folks who unfortunately um because the administration is playing defense and trying to have the best possible legal case to defend the entire uh, loan forgiveness plan um, chose to exclude uh, some of those older fell borrowers. And the administration is still taking applications despite the pause, right, Danielle? And um, and can you just give a little run through on exactly how people apply? What kind of information do they need to provide the administration to apply? Sure. So, yes, the administration is definitely still taking applications. There are even uh, senators and members of Congress, otherwise, who are going around to their district to encourage people to apply. Uh, the administration say that they're going to collect applications and start to review them, even though they can't start discharging the loans. The While there are about 8 million people who are eligible for automatic relief uh, because they recently submitted income information through the FAFSA, the Federal Financial Aid Form, 
or because they are paying their loans through income-based repayment, those people don't have to apply and they're being notified and probably have already been notified with an email from the department saying that they're eligible for this automatic relief. They can opt out at any time. Everybody else can go to studentaid.gov to apply. And it's a really short form, I think maybe four or five questions asking just basic information like name, social security, number, birth date, um, and I think uh, whether or not you had a Pell Grant. The department can match up that data with their own files about whether or not you had a Pell Grant. Um, so I know there was some concern about people who had attended school before 1994 and them not being able to find their Pell records in the National Student Loan Database. But the department has said that they do have that information on hand. So once you apply, they'll be able to kind of verify whether any of that is accurate. It's really, it's a self-attestation form. So you are telling the federal government that all the information that you're supplying is correct under the penalty of um, being penalized if you are lying. So that is a part of it. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of concern about whether or not there could be fraud in this program because of this short kind of self-attestation form. There will be some verification, random sampling of verification to make sure that borrowers are providing the right information and requiring them to submit a few more documents to verify. I think the department said it could be anywhere between a million to five million people could be flagged for verification and under this process, depending on how many people apply. So just pay attention to all those things, but the application is still open. Uh, they are working on a paper form as well, but right now online through your phone, you can apply. All right. Well, Kevin and Danielle, I'm going to give you five seconds each for some final thoughts uh, about this. Uh, Kevin, you go first. Uh, just to repeat, if you're listening and you have a student loan, um, this is the time to pay attention. This is the time to be on the phone with your servicer. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in front of us and there's pretty big financial stakes. So pay attention and uh, make sure you start making your payments in January once they come to. And Danielle, anything else that you're keeping an eye on? I would just kind of uplift what Kevin said, just really pay attention to what's happening and pay a lot of attention to these lawsuits. But I would also say separately, there are a number of other initiatives that the Department of Education had announced in the last year that are starting to take shape right now, like the income-driven repayment adjustment, right? Now, this could potentially help a lot of people who have been making payments for 20, 25 years get closer to forgiveness, if not have their loans fully uh, wiped away. Pay attention to that. The Also, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Waiver is ending this month. If you haven't already applied, that is also something to look into. So while certainly the one-time relief would be offered the broadest level of uh, debt relief, there are other programs out there. That's great. Thank you to both of you. To Kevin Carey, Vice President for Education Policy and Knowledge Management at New America, and to Daniel Douglas Gabriel, who is a national higher education reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you so much to those listening uh, for our deep dive on President Biden's student loan forgiveness program.